Appendices. Appendix A. Reform of Limited Liability Law. Among those who have called for reform of the economy, along the lines set out in Chapter 5, there are some who have also argued for the abolition of the limited liability status of joint stock companies as a necessary concomitant of such reforms. As we shall see, R.D. Rushdoney links the development of limited liability and the growth of a fiat economy, and in The Politics of Guilt and Pity, he entitled the chapter on limited liability, quote, limited liability and unlimited money, end quote. Likewise, Gary North in An Introduction to Christian Economics wrote, quote, Monetary inflation, multiple indebtedness and limited liability are an unholy economic trinity. They are eroding the very foundation of Western culture, end quote. These are strong words indeed against limited liability, since Although there are in the Bible specific laws addressing the debasement of money and multiple indebtedness, there are none that explicitly address the kind of limited liability granted to joint stock companies in modern Western law. The issue is much more complex than that. Nonetheless, although the Bible does not contain explicit laws addressing this issue, it does give general principles and case laws from which the limits of a company's or individual shareholders' liability can be deduced. A careful study of the biblical material relevant to this issue would, I believe, yield neither the conclusion that shareholders of joint stock companies should be held liable beyond the nominal value of their shareholding in all circumstances where the company's actions or failure to act have led to justifiable claims for damages, nor that limited liability status should be accepted in its present form, since both fail to apportion liability for damages in the way that biblical law suggests that it should be apportioned. Limited liability law restricts the liability of a shareholder in a joint stock company to the nominal value of his shareholding. In the event of a limited company being forced into liquidation in order to pay off its debts, the shareholder may lose the whole or part of his investment since the company's assets will be sold and the proceeds used to reimburse its creditors. But that is the limit of his liability. If the sale of the company's assets does not raise sufficient funds to clear the company's debts, the shareholder is not obligated to reimburse the company's creditors out of his own private estate, as would be the case if he were a partner in a non-limited liability company that was forced into liquidation. He would not run the risk of personal bankruptcy, therefore. There are three kinds of limited liability company, the private company, the public company, and the company limited by guarantee. The private limited company is more restricted in its ability to raise capital than the public limited company, since the maximum number of shareholders permitted by law is 50. Its shares are not quoted on the stock exchange, and transfers of shares have to be approved by the directors. In addition, the controlling shareholders are often required by banks to give personal guarantees for any debts incurred by the company. This latter fact goes some way to mitigating the effects of the limited liability status granted by law to private limited companies. The public limited company, by comparison, can raise capital by means of public subscription. Its shares are traded on the stock exchange and their seal does not have to be approved by the company's directors. Shares in a public company are thus more liquid. Companies limited by guarantee are normally non-profit-making or charitable organisations. They have no share capital, and the liability of their directors is limited to a fixed, usually nominal, amount of money. The term limited liability can be used in a much broader and looser sense than this, however. Because man is a finite being, his liabilities are limited. Man's knowledge is not exhaustive. He has to live and work within the limits of his knowledge. The fact that man's knowledge is limited means that his liabilities are, of necessity, limited also. In this broader sense, man's liabilities are limited by many things. For example, there are natural limits to man's inability 
for example, death limits man's liabilities, there are also man-made limits to his liabilities. For example, contracts may limit a man's liability. Insurance companies may write clauses into life insurance policies, limiting the liability of the insurance company under certain circumstances. A common contractual limitation in life insurance policies stipulates that if the insured commits suicide within a certain number of years after taking out the policy, the company is not liable to pay out. Such contracts bring us into the realm of legal limitations on man's liability. But man's liability is also limited by God's law. There are thus divine limits placed on man's liability. However, it is with the restricted and narrower use of the term that we are concerned here, that is, with the term as it is applied in law to joint stock companies whose shareholders' liability is restricted to the nominal value of their shareholding. The purpose of this chapter is to establish, from biblical principles and criteria, the extent of the validity or non-validity of this modern idea of limited liability as it is applied to joint stock companies in law. It is important that this restricted use of the term is kept in mind and not confused with the more general notion and alternative uses of the term. It has been argued that limited liability is in the first place unjust since it shifts liability from those who are responsible for a company's actions to innocent parties. Second, limited liability separates property from control and ownership from management resulting in the separation of management from responsibility. Shareholders become interested not in ownership and responsible management of the company, but simply in a drive for more profits. Third, this leads to a greater tendency for companies to assume debt, make risky investments, and undertake risky business projects. Since the consequences of bankruptcy are borne only partially by the company, its creditors having to bear any loss above the value of its assets, there is an incentive for companies to assume debt that they cannot clear by the sale of their assets in the event of failure. Shareholders without limited liability to protect them, however, would likely be more concerned about the kind of risk-taking the company engages in, the amount of debt it assumes, and more generally, that it has a responsible management team. The concerns would be expressed at shareholders' meetings by the dismissal of incompetent or irresponsible directors and the appointment of a prudent and trustworthy management. At such meetings, shareholders would be concerned about protecting not only their investments, but also their personal estates and reputations. Limited liability, by protecting shareholders from the more unpleasant and economically ruinous consequences of risky and imprudent enterprises undertaken by the company, encourages irresponsibility on the part of shareholders, many of whom might not even turn up for shareholders' meetings, and greater risk-taking and imprudent investment by the company's management. With companies that are not granted limited liability status, shareholders have to protect themselves by ensuring that the company acts responsibly and is able to clear any debts it has incurred by the sale of its assets, and therefore, without calling on the personal estates of its shareholders, should it be forced into liquidation. Rushduni argues the case for complete abolition of the limited liability status of joint stock companies. He makes the point that, although there is limited liability status for companies in modern Western society, the individual, by comparison, is subject to almost unlimited liability by the law. Quote, Today, the law penalises the individual with almost unlimited liabilities, so that every kind of insurance is necessary for the individual as homeowner, driver and parent in the event that his child blackens a bully's eye. On the other hand, corporate irresponsibility is fostered by limited liability laws which, over a period of time, separate property from control, ownership from management and management from responsibility. End quote. Rushduni goes on to state the problems with limited liability very clearly. Quote, Liability is inescapable. By limiting the liability of the economy which contracts a debt or permits a fraud, the liability is then passed on to innocent parties. Limited liability thus shifts responsibility away from the responsible 
to society at large. A partner or shareholder in a company will exercise cautious and conscientious control over his company. If his liability for the debts and frauds of that company are not limited to the extent of his investment, the result is sound, moral and careful management of a company by the actual owners. But with limited liability, a premium is placed on the profits irrespective of responsibility. The shareholder is less concerned with buying responsible ownership and more concerned with buying a share in profits. And then, as the state further protects the shareholder against liabilities in his irresponsible pursuit of profits, the shareholder becomes less and less concerned with the responsible and moral management of his company. End quote. Furthermore, quote, the limited liability company has an advantage over the company without such protection. Having limited responsibility for its debts, it is free to take chances, which a fully responsible company will not take. The limited liability company has state protection in its risk-taking, which the other companies do not have. End quote. Likewise, E. L. Hebden Taylor in Economics, Money and Banking argues that limited liability quote, must be abolished so that all investors are forced to assume full responsibility for the companies in which they own shares. Such a drastic step would make all shareholders attend the annual meetings of the companies in which they now hold shares and keep track of what the managements of such companies are doing. End quote. The effects of limited liability, argues Rushduni, are twofold. Quote, the first effect of limited liability was the progressive separation of ownership from responsibility, of management from property. Burnham called it the, quote, managerial revolution, end quote, without analysing its origins in limited liability. Burl has also described it as a revolution, one in which a group of executives control a corporation whose owners have retained little power over their property. Quote, the historic field of responsibility, a group of financially interested stockholders to which each corporate management must account is progressively being eliminated. End quote. There is a divorce of individuals from economic initiative. There is now, quote, power without property, end quote, that is, without responsible individual ownership. Persons and organisations other than owners control or manage property. The stockholders, technically owners, quote, have the right to receive only. The condition of their being is that they do not interfere in management, end quote, end quote. A second effect of limited liability is that it has, quote, assured a greater readiness by corporations to assume debt. After all, the homes and incomes of those involved are not at stake, but only their limited investment, end quote. Furthermore, Rushduni argues that the accumulation of corporate debt is geared to the process of inflation. Limited liability and an inflationary economy go hand in hand and feed on one another. Quote, the effect of this limited liability has been to replace a hard money economy with an inflationary credit economy. It is interesting to note that both paper money and limited liability became entrenched in the United States after the Civil War. Hence, North's insistence that inflation, multiple indebtedness and limited liability are an unholy alliance that threatens the foundation of Western culture. A related problem is that by providing shareholders with a degree of immunity from the consequences of the irresponsible actions of the company, limited liability also helps to impede the efficient and prudent allocation of scarce resources within the economy since companies that may take risks and engage in debt-financed enterprises that would not otherwise have been practicable, and that assume a level of economic prosperity within society that is, in fact, illusory. This factor is more prominent during periods of economic boom, when cheap loans and easy credit are available in abundance. The resulting adjustments that have to be made when recession hits the economy generally lead to an increase in company bankruptcies, The shareholders benefit during the boom from the expansionary and irresponsible actions of the company and when recession hits the economy, 
they are able to get away with the loss of their investment only, which by then, as a result of inflation, is worth much less than when originally invested anyway. In other words, in an inflationary economy, the short-term profits that can be made as a result of irresponsible expansion of the debt financing of enterprises may well sufficiently exceed the shareholder's initial investment to compensate him more than adequately for the limited loss involved should the company be forced into liquidation when recession hits the economy. The effects of such irresponsibility, however, do not simply disappear. They are passed on to others in the form of bad debts and unpaid bills for capital and services supplied to the economy before it is declared bankrupt. Limited liability thus contributes to the general economic vandalism generated by the business cycle. These are important arguments that demand serious consideration. The irresponsible use of wealth will ultimately lead to economic decline, and limited liability encourages such responsibility, or at least helps to protect shareholders from the more severe effects of such irresponsibility. The case against limited liability must be considered seriously, therefore, and weighed against the biblical material relevant to the issue. More recently, however, Gary North has changed his mind on this issue and no longer sees limited liability as part of an unholy economic trinity that threatens Western culture. In his book, Tools of Dominion, North argues that limited liability has good precedent in God's law. North writes, quote, Certain kinds of economic transactions that limit the liability of either party, should one of them go bankrupt, are valid. End quote. For example, quote, a bank that makes a loan to a church to construct a building cannot collect payment from individual members should the church be unable to meet its financial obligations. End quote. He then claims that, quote, the same sorts of limited liability arrangements ought to be legally valid for other kinds of associations, including profit-seeking corporations, limited partnerships, or other private citizens who can get other economic actors to agree voluntarily to some sort of limited liability arrangement. North claims that he has come to this conclusion by a, quote, careful, unquote, consideration of, quote, the legal implications of the imposition of unlimited personal liability on church members for the decisions of pastors and church officers, end quote. He then poses the question, quote, could the church function if every member were made potentially liable to the limits of its capital for the illegal activity of the church's officers, end quote. However, the case of an individual church member is very different from that of a shareholder in a joint stock company. The two are certainly not analogous. A church member does not own part of the church, nor does he draw dividends from it, and except in, quote, democratic, unquote, churches, he is not responsible for the actions of the church leadership. Furthermore, North demolishes his own case by arguing, correctly in my opinion, that a wise banker would not loan money to the church and would instead advise individual members to finance the church's needs by remortgaging their houses and then donating the borrowed money to the church, thus placing the liability for the debt with individual church members on whom the bank can foreclose if they default on repayment. North comments that this, quote, makes church members personally responsible for repayment. Members cannot escape their former financial promises by walking away from the church, end quote. The remortgaging scheme for making funds available to the church, North continues, quote, keeps the church out of debt as an institution, which is godly testimony concerning the evil of debt, Romans 13, 8a, end quote. Evidently then, for North, individual church members should bear the responsibility for securing debt in regard to a church project. It is the institution that should be protected not the individual member. But this contradicts his former statement that individuals should not be held liable. North's argument here is confused and inconsistent. This simply demonstrates, however, that the analogy between the church and the joint stock company does not hold. It is illogical, therefore, to deduce the liabilities of shareholders in a company from the individual personal liabilities involved in church membership. North is a high churchman who likes to argue that membership in the church is not voluntary, but rather the commandment of God. Given that perspective, 
How then can he argue that the same principles of personal legal liability arising from membership of a church are applicable to a voluntary association such as a joint stock company? His argument breaks down completely. But even leaving aside this argument, since not all Christians would argue that membership of a church is not voluntary, membership of a church, or indeed a youth club, social club or bingo club, is an entirely different matter from share owning in a company. Noah's argument for limited liability revolves around faulty exegesis and faulty logic. Unfortunately, North does not help his case by mixing arguments regarding limited liability in the narrower sense as applied to joint stock companies whose shareholders' liability is restricted to the nominal value of their shareholding with examples of other kinds of limited liability such as an employer's liability regarding the risks knowingly taken by an employee during a dangerous job and the contractual limits placed on an insurance company's liability by an insurance policy. The latter two cases are of an entirely different order from that of the former, and the conflation of these disparate kinds of restriction and a company's liability in the same argument only serves to confuse the issue of whether the limited liability as applied to shareholders of joint stock companies is morally valid and sanctioned by biblical law. Furthermore, the question at issue between those who would abolish limited liability and North, who wishes to keep it, is not whether there should be limits or no limits to man's liability, but at what point man's liability should be limited. North is correct when he argues that, quote, man is a limited creature. His knowledge is therefore limited. Because his knowledge is limited, God limits man's legal liability. But this is a much more general notion of limited liability than that indicated by the term as it is applied to joint stock companies. It would have been helpful if North had kept this stricter meaning of the term in mind when voicing his disagreement with Rashtuni. Those who advocate abolition of limited liability law as it applies to the shareholders of a company are not doing so on the premise that man's responsibility is unlimited, but rather on the premise that the point at which his liability should cease must be governed by biblical principles and priorities. Without limited liability status, as it is presently granted by law, the maximum limit of the liability of individual shareholders in a bankrupt company will be determined not by the nominal value of their shareholding, but by the extent of the company's debts and bankruptcy law. That is to say, a bankrupt company that could not clear its debts by the sale of its assets would be forced to call upon the private estates of its shareholders who would have to make repayment, if necessary, up to the point of having to declare themselves bankrupt. Thus, the shareholder's liability is limited ultimately by bankruptcy law, not limited liability law as it now exists. Thus, the shareholder's liability is limited ultimately by bankruptcy law, not limited liability law as it now exists. Rushduni argues that this is a reflection of biblical law, which required that at the end of every seventh year, all debts should be cancelled. Deuteronomy 15, 1 and 2. He cites H.B. Clark's quote, Modern statutes of limitation and bankruptcy acts fulfil the purpose of the ancient law of sabbatical release. The former by forbidding the bringing of an act upon a debtor after a certain number of years, and the latter enabling a debtor to turn over his property in satisfaction of his debts. End quote. Rushduni adds the comment that quote, The modern statutes are thoroughly secular and profane in intention, however, and while derived from the biblical Sabbath law of release, are alien in spirit from it. Rushduni later restates the point that bankruptcy laws reflect the biblical principle of Sabbath release from debt and makes an additional observation on the protection they afford to the family. Quote, Modern bankruptcy laws, despite their abuses, reflect not only the biblical sabbatical release on debts, but the preservation to the wife and family of the home from the claim of creditors. End quote. Those who have, following Rushduni, and North himself in his earlier writings, argued for the abolition of limited liability laws, are not arguing that man's liabilities are unlimited, therefore, but simply that the modern practice of limiting a shareholder's liability to the nominal value of his shareholding should be abolished 
a shareholder's liabilities would be limited by bankruptcy law, which reflects the biblical principle of sabbatical debt release. The difference between North and those who wish to abolish limited liability is not that the former accepts the validity of limited liability, while the latter insists there should be no limits to man's liability. It is rather a difference over the point at which a shareholder's liability should be limited legally. North desires that shareholders' liability be limited to the nominal value of their investment. Verse Juni insists that shareholders should exercise responsible ownership and that limited liability discourages this and should be abolished. Instead, the shareholders' liability would be limited by bankruptcy law. This would force the shareholders to exercise responsible ownership over the company. A careful consideration of the biblical laws governing the responsibilities of ownership suggests, however, that neither of these two positions is entirely correct, and that they both contain important elements of the biblical position while rejecting other equally important biblical principles. The biblical case laws relevant to the responsibilities and liabilities of ownership of property are given in Exodus 21, 28-36, and 22, 5 and 6. Neither these nor any other laws in the Bible address the modern concept of share ownership directly, but the principles involved are applicable to joint stock companies by way of extension. Indeed, these case laws set down the only principles from which we can determine from a biblical perspective what the liabilities of share ownership should be. Quote, If an ox gore a man or a woman that they die, then the ox shall be surely stoned, and his flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall be quit. End quote. Exodus 21, 28. Quote, But if the ox were wont to push with his horn in time past, and it hath been testified to his owner, and he hath not kept him in, but that he hath killed a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and his owner also shall be put to death. If there be laid on him a sum of money, then they shall give for the ransom of his life whatsoever is laid upon him, whether he have gored a son or have gored a daughter, according to this judgment shall it be done unto him. If the ox shall push a manservant or a maidservant, he shall give unto their master thirty shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. End quote. Exodus 21, 29-32 Quote And if a man shall open a pit, or if a man shall dig a pit, and not cover it, and the ox or an ass fall therein, the owner of the pit shall make it good, and give money unto the owner of them, and the dead beast shall be his. End quote. Exodus 21, 33-34 If one man's ox hurt another, that he die, then they shall sell the live ox, and divide the money of it, and the dead ox also they shall divide. End quote. Exodus 21, 35 quote, Or if it be known that the ox hath used to push in time past, and his owner hath not kept him in, he shall surely pay ox for ox, and the dead shall be his own. End quote. Exodus 21, 36 quote, If a man shall cause a field or a vineyard to be eaten, and shall feed in another man's field, of the best of his own field, and of the best of his own vineyard, shall he make restitution. End quote. Exodus 22, 5. Quote, if fire break out and catch in thorns, so that the stacks of corn, or the standing corn, or the field be consumed therewith, he that kindleth the fire shall surely make restitution. End quote. Exodus 22, 6. It is clear from these laws that, in the biblical perspective, the major criterion for determining an individual's liability arising from ownership of property is the extent of his knowledge of the consequences of his actions or failure to take action. If a man's actions or failure to act have consequences that he cannot reasonably be expected to foresee, his liability for damage inflicted on the property or lives of others is limited. In this case, North's observation is correct. Quote, Man is not to be judged by standards that could apply justly only to an omniscient being. End quote. If, on the other hand, a man knows that his actions or failure to act 
are dangerous and likely to result in injury to others or damage to their property, he is liable to compensate the victim fully for his loss. And in the case of the death of a victim, the maximum penalty of death is available. Quite clearly, therefore, biblical law establishes cases in which the financial liabilities arising from ownership of property are limited to the value of the property involved, or even less than the value of the property involved. It also establishes cases in which liability is not limited to the value of one's investment, and in which restitution must be made in full. We shall now look more closely at these cases, extend their principles, involved to other possible similar cases, and then consider how they might be applied to modern joint stock companies and their shareholders. Case A. An ox that has no previous record gores a human being to death. The owner has no prior warning of this since the animal had previously been docile. The owner's liability in this case is very limited. In fact, the limit of his liability is the nominal value of his investment since the ox is put to death and cannot be sold for meat. The Bible clearly establishes here a case of limited liability to some extent analogous to the kind of a liability imputed to shareholders of a limited company. The difference, however, and it is a significant difference, is that limited liability is not a status applicable in all possible eventualities. The limit of the owner's liability, in other words, is not established by the granting of a legal status, but in terms of the particulars of an individual case in which a claim might be made against the owner. Case B. An ox that has no previous record gores another ox to death. The owner of the goring ox must sell it and split the price between himself and the owner of the dead ox. They then divide the dead ox between themselves. In this case, the liability of the owner of the goring ox is limited to less than the nominal value of his investment since the costs incurred by the incident are borne equally by the two parties involved, the victim as well as the owner of the goring ox. The owner of the dead ox receives compensation only to half the value of the live ox plus half the value of the dead ox. Generally speaking, the market value of a goring ox will be lower than that of a docile ox, and thus the compensation received by the victim may well be less than half the value of his loss. If the ox that gored is a prize bull, however, he might possibly gain more than this. Case C. Suppose, however, that a previously docile ox gores two oxen to death. The Bible does not address this case specifically, but the principles for determining the limits of the owner's liability and the just settlement of any claim arising from it are already given in case B. The live ox is sold and the price split three ways, one part going to each of the three parties involved, or, in the case that the two dead oxen are owned by the same person, two parts going to the injured party, and the dead oxen are similarly split three ways. In this case, the compensation received by each of the parties involved from the sale of the live ox is less than in case B. That is, each party receives only a third of the proceeds from the sale of the live ox, compared with half the proceeds in case B, and each party receives a third of each of the two dead oxen. Were each dead ox to be split equally between its owner and the owner of the goring ox, the latter would come off better than the injured parties, since each party would receive a third of the value of the live ox. But the owner of the goring ox would receive half of both dead oxen, whereas the injured parties would receive only half a dead ox each. In case B, each party receives an equal share of the proceeds of the sale of the live ox and an equal division of the dead ox. In order for this proportionality to be maintained in case C, therefore, the dead oxen must be split equally between all the parties involved. The liability of the owner of the goring ox is, in one sense, greater, in that he receives less from the division of the price of the live ox than in case B, but the compensation awarded to the injured parties is correspondingly less than in case B also. In these cases, the liability of the owner is clearly limited to the criterion for determining this limitation of liability is the extent of the owner's knowledge. Man is a finite creature. He cannot be expected to predict the future, and he is not to be judged as if he could. 
His liability is therefore restricted by the limits of his knowledge. The case is far different, however, when the owner had prior knowledge that an ox was dangerous. Case D. An ox that is known to be dangerous and whose owner has been warned and still does not take sufficient care to restrain it so that it goes a free man, woman or child to death. This is clearly a case of criminal negligence. The owner's liability is established by means of the biblical principle of justice, quote, life for life, end quote, Exodus 21-23. In this case, provision is made for the death sentence to be commuted to financial compensation, a, quote, ransom, end quote, verse 30. The citing of the death penalty, however, serves an important purpose in establishing the ultimate limits of liability arising from ownership of property. If in certain cases a man may be liable to forfeit his life, then he is, a fortiori, liable to forfeit his property in order to compensate his victim, and possibly even his freedom, since he may be forced to sell himself into servitude in order to raise sufficient money to pay the ransom determined by the court. Exodus 21, 2. Compare Leviticus 25, 39-41. Deuteronomy 15, 12-14. In compensating a victim's family for his death, the owner of the goring ox with a reputation would be expected to pay in full whatever the court determined as an appropriate ransom. His liability, therefore, is certainly not limited to the nominal value of his investment. In the case where an ox with a reputation gored a slave to death, the amount of compensation was fixed at 30 shekels of silver and paid to the slave's owner, not to his blood relatives. According to Kael and Delich, 30 shekels of silver was probably the price for the redemption of a slave, that of a free man being 50 shekels of silver, Leviticus 27, 3. If the owner had attempted to restrain the animal securely, however, and the rope broke or the ox escaped in some other way, it would be up to the court to determine whether the owner had taken reasonable precautions within the limits of his knowledge. If he were found to have acted responsibly, and could not have foreseen that the rope would break, the case would be resolved as a case involving limited knowledge, as in case A. Case E. An ox that is known to be dangerous, and whose owner has been warned, and yet still does not take sufficient care to restrain it, so that it goes another ox to death. The owner of the goring ox must pay full compensation for the value of the dead ox, which then becomes his. Again, the owner's liability is not limited, if the dead ox is a prize bull, he must pay its full value. Case F. Someone opens or digs a pit and leaves it uncovered or without a fence around it, and an ox or a donkey falls in, and as a result dies. Compare Deuteronomy 22. 8. The case is treated like those in which the owner of an ox that is known to be dangerous does not restrain it properly, since it is reasonable to expect the one who leaves a pit uncovered to foresee the possible consequences of doing so. It is within the limits of human understanding to calculate the dangers posed to others by leaving a pit uncovered. The one who leaves the pit uncovered is thus liable to pay full compensation to the owner of the dead animal and keeps the dead animal himself. Case G. An ox that is known to be dangerous and whose owner has been warned and yet still fails to take precautions to restrain the animal so that it goes to death two oxen. This case, as with case C, is not directly addressed in the Bible, but the principles for determining the owner's liability are contained in case E, and it is a simple matter to apply them in this case. The owner of the goring ox must pay full compensation for both the dead auction and keeps the dead animals, the sale of which may help to defray the costs of compensating the victims. Case H an ox with a reputation for goring, whose owner has been warned, and still does not take care to restrain the animal properly, so that it goes five oxen to death. This is an extension of case G. The owner of the goring ox must pay compensation in full to the victims. However, suppose he is poor and he has to sell his possessions to raise enough to compensate his victim. He may get something from the sale of the dead oxen, which could help but even then he is not able to make restitution. His only recourse would be to sell himself into bondage to raise the money needed to compensate his victims.
Suppose, however, that even this does not raise enough money to pay full compensation to the victims. He is still in debt to his victims. The maximum period of bondage into which a Hebrew could sell himself was seven years, Leviticus 25, 39 to 43. The maximum period for which a Hebrew could be in debt was also seven years, Deuteronomy 15, 1 and 2. Moreover, the actual period of bondage or debt might be considerably less than this, since manumission and cancellation of debt occurred every seventh year. If a Hebrew obtained a loan or sold himself into bondage three years after the last sabbatical year of release, the maximum period he would serve or be in debt would be four years. The implication of this for the matter under consideration here is that if the poor man could not raise the full amount of compensation by selling his property and then selling himself into bondage, the victims would have to settle on the maximum that he could raise in this way. Even if they were to hold the remainder against him as debt while he was still in bondage, it would automatically be cancelled at the next sabbatical year, which would coincide with his manumission. This is, to some extent, analogous to modern bankruptcy law. The most significant difference being that modern bankruptcy law does not provide for the bankrupt to sell himself into bondage. The liability of the Goring Ox's owner is not limited to the nominal value of his investment, but is ultimately limited by the sabbatical year of release. Case I Someone allows his animals to graze another man's field or vineyard, or starts a fire that spreads to another man's property. These are laws relating to accidental damage to property caused by one not exercising proper caution. The compensation payable by the offending party to his victim is simple restitution. There is no limitation of liability, such as that granted to joint stock companies in modern Western law for the one who causes the accident, since the consequences of allowing one's animals to graze in another man's field, or of lighting a fire without taking precautions to ensure that it does not spread, can be expected to be foreseen. The perpetrator would thus be liable to the full value of the damaged property, and he would have to make restitution out of his own estate, or, if this were insufficient to pay off his debts, sell himself into servitude until the next sabbatical year of release, at which point his liability would cease. This case is analogous to case F, since the outcome of such negligence is foreseeable. Application of the principles of liability set forth in case I to modern joint stock companies is fairly straightforward. Shareholders of companies that were required to pay compensation as a result of such accidents would be responsible for ensuring that the victim was fully compensated for his loss. If the company were unable to pay such compensation, either some or all of its assets would have to be sold in order to raise the funds necessary, or the shareholders would have to raise sufficient funds between them from their own estates, and their liability would not be limited except by bankruptcy law. It is clear from these cases that the Bible limits man's liabilities, but not in the way that modern limited liability law restricts the liabilities of shareholders of joint stock companies. The most important point thrown up by a consideration of these cases is the criterion used to determine the extent of one's liability arising from the ownership of property, viz. the extent of the owner's knowledge. Limited knowledge brings limited liability. But cases D, E, F and I demonstrate that this principle cannot be abused to the extent that the owner of property need only be ill-informed of the consequences of his actions or failure to act in order to avoid the responsibilities of ownership. Thus, cases D and E, involving an animal with a reputation for goring, case F, involving an uncovered pit, and case I, involving accidental damage to another's property by straying cattle or fire, place limits on the application of the limited knowledge principle. That is to say, the limited knowledge principle is not applicable where an owner can be reasonably expected to foresee the possible dangerous consequences of his actions or failure to act and the damage it might cause to others' property or lives, even though he may not have fulfilled that expectation, that is, even though he may be ignorant of his responsibilities. In other words, biblical case law establishes the possibility of negligence as a criterion for determining the extent of liability, as well as the criterion of 
extent of knowledge. In fact, the negligence principle establishes the limits of the extent of knowledge principle. The issues involved in reform of limited liability company law from a biblical perspective are, therefore, much more complex than a simple choice between limited liability, using the term in the strict sense as applied to joint stock companies, and unlimited liability. The cases in which, in terms of biblical criteria, a modern limited company might be held to be genuinely in ignorance regarding the possible consequences of its actions or failure to act, and thus in which its shareholders' liability is limited to the nominal value of their investment, are far less numerous than those in which the shareholders would be held liable beyond the value of their shareholding. Furthermore, in those cases in which a company acted in ignorance, the maximum liability of the shareholders in financial terms might be considerably less than the nominal value of their shareholdings. For example, a company that buried toxic waste knowing the dangers this posed to others' property and lives, or at least in a situation where it might reasonably be expected that the company's managers could calculate the risks involved, would be liable to pay full damages in terms of biblical criteria, and its shareholders would be expected to contribute from their private estates if the sale of the company's assets failed to raise sufficient funds to compensate the victims. On the other hand, a drunk company that issued a drug that was genuinely believed to be beneficial and safe within the limits of knowledge available at the time, and that was confirmed to be safe within the limits of the knowledge then available by independent sources, but was subsequently shown to have serious side effects, might, according to biblical principles, have no liability at all, that is, in case of death, case A, or only limited liability, which would, in financial terms, be less than the total value of the company's assets. For example, in the case of serious injury, the company would be forced to liquidate its assets and distribute the proceeds between its victims and shareholders, the shareholders receiving between them a one-part share of the proceeds, case C. Neither of these scenarios would conform to current practices of compensation by limited liability companies. Evidently, therefore, there is need for a form of limited liability law as it presently exists. The question now arises as to how the biblical criteria for determining the extent of liability arising from ownership of property might be applied to modern joint stock companies. It is clear from a consideration of the biblical evidence that a blanket limitation of the shareholder's liability to the nominal value of his investment, such as that granted in modern limited liability law, in many cases is subversive of justice, since it legally relieves companies of their moral responsibility to make full compensation to those adversely affected by their actions or failure to act where biblical principles of liability and restitution demand that they should. From the biblical perspective, therefore, the case for abolition of the limited liability status of joint stock companies, at least as it presently exists, is a strong one. On the other hand, it would be equally unsatisfactory from the biblical perspective to expose shareholders to the same variety of liabilities that would arise in modern Western society if limited liability were simply abolished entirely. Along with the abolition of current limited liability laws, therefore, it would be necessary to establish some way of limiting the liabilities of shareholders where such limitations could be justified on biblical grounds. Reform must be aimed at protecting shareholders where their liability is genuinely limited in terms of biblical criteria, as well as forcing them to honour their obligation to compensate their victims fully where such limitations are not applicable. However, it would be very difficult, probably impossible, to incorporate such limitations into the legal structure of a company in the way that modern limited liability law does. It would seem that the only way of applying biblical principles of liability to joint stock companies would be through the courts on a case-by-case basis in which the extent of a company's liability is established on the merits of each individual claim or group of claims arising from the same incident. Reform of limited liability law, therefore, would need to entail both the abolition of the limited liability status of companies as it presently exists in law, and the recognition in law of biblical principles governing the limitation of liability arising from ownership of property. This would protect individuals and companies from claims for compensation 
that could not be justified on biblical grounds or where, in excess of the amounts that would be granted as a result of the application of the biblical principle of limited knowledge. Appendices Conclusion Although there are no proof texts that directly address share ownership as practiced by modern joint stock companies, the biblical principles relevant to the responsibilities and liabilities of ownership of property generally support the conclusion of R.J. Rushdeny and E.L. Hebden-Taylor, and even G. North in his earlier writings, that the limited liability status of modern companies should be abolished. It would not be valid to conclude, however, that shareholders in joint stock companies should therefore bear unlimited liability for the actions of the company in all circumstances involving valid claims against the company for compensation. The extent of a company's liability arising from a particular case would have to be determined on its own merits by the courts in terms of the application of the biblical principles of extent of knowledge and negligence. Although limited liability law, as it presently stands, is contrary to biblical principles of justice in many cases, and thus in need of reform, it is not as serious in its effects on the economy as the problems arising from the debasement of currency and multiple indebtedness. It is doubtful that it is undermining the foundations of Western culture, though, in many cases, it does unjustly undermine the moral requirements of responsible ownership and the biblical requirement that compensation be made in full to those adversely affected by a company's irresponsible actions or failure to act responsibly. Reform must lead to the recognition in law of the biblical principles of limitation of liability arising from ownership of property. It must also enable these principles to be applied effectively in practice by the courts. This would mean that the maximum liability of shareholders in a joint stock company would be limited by bankruptcy law, and that, where their liability is restricted as a result of limiting knowledge, it might be fixed in financial terms below, and possibly significantly below, the nominal value of their shareholding. These reforms would engender responsible attitudes to ownership on the part of shareholders, while at the same time protecting companies from the unfair and unscrupulous claims for compensation that they would likely incur in modern Western societies without the protection of limited liability status.